0: toward becoming a fully committed follower of Jesus Christ. Enjoy. You know, a lot of Christians are confused about what to do with the 10 Commandments. There, there's kind of two extremes. One, one extreme says, you know, they, we, we live under grace, so we can just kind of throw all of that out, 10 Commandments, all of God's commandments. It doesn't really matter. We just need to love God and, you know, love people. and. That, so we could call that license. We could say, yeah, we just got permission to, to do whatever now. Um, some people look at that and say, wow, that, that's too extreme. So they go to the other extreme of legalism and say, no, we've got to obey all the commandments. They're still in effect. And so there's like all this, this confusion about that. And a lot of people end up somewhere in the middle. They, they end up mixing the idea of faith in Jesus but then adding to that, well, we still need to obey the commandments. So if you ask a lot of Christ followers, is the way to have a relationship with God by faith alone in Christ alone, they will say, yes, that's the way to have a relationship with God. And then if you follow up that question with, do you need to obey the commandments then to to go to heaven? They will say, yes, yes. I mean, we still need to be obedient. So there's a lot of confusion about that and then people outside of the faith, meanwhile, are looking at Christians and like, wow, you guys are a bunch of confused people and you know, they just kinda you know, jettison the whole thing. So what is a person to do who wants to please God? I mean, do we obey the commandments or, or don't we? Paul is gonna sort that out for us today. If you don't have a Bible, well, take your Bible, uh, or if you don't have a Bible with you, you can grab one there and turn to Romans chapter seven. That is where we're gonna be this morning. If you grab one of those Bibles on the seat, Romans seven is on page 1044. If you happen to be new with us today or last Sunday, I'm just gonna tell you we're in Romans chapter seven. We're studying the whole way through this book of, of Romans. And we've hit chapter seven. And I'm just gonna tell you, this is a little bit dense, all right? This is a little bit heavy. So if you're coming in on that, you're like, wow, you know, this is some heavy stuff. I just wanna tell you, it's not all like that. And actually, we're kind of in this cycle, if you've noticed this, of like every other chapter is kind of fun and then every other chapter is a little bit harder. And so that all started back in chapter three. When we got to chapter four, it's all about the faith of Abraham. We are made right with God through faith. And it's like, wow, that's that's awesome. And then we get to chapter five, and it's all about like comparing Adam, we're born into sin, and Adam and and Jesus came to rescue us. That one's a little bit heavier. Then we get to chapter six, and it's like, oh, now we're dead to sin. We are dead to the law. That's like really encouraging stuff. And now we're in seven, and it's like, wow, what what is the law all about, and what should our relationship to the law be? So I just want to tell you, if you're in this and you're like, wow, this is heavy. So um, we're going to get to chapter eight in two weeks, and it's going to be the best thing that we've seen yet in Romans. So hang on in seven, um, because it's important to understand this and we're gonna appreciate eight all the more. We're gonna pick up today where we left off last week. So I wanna reread a verse that we looked at last week, chapter seven, verse five. While we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law, We're at work in our members to bear fruit for death. There's a little phrase there, aroused by the law. Our sinful passions aroused by the law. We're gonna zoom in on that and expand on that today in verses seven through 12. I'm gonna read that whole paragraph now so we get the big picture, and then we're gonna go back and unpack. Verse seven, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? And I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Paul is wrestling with this tension. What what do we do with the law? What do we do with the, the commandments? He's talking about the law of Moses, the law given by God to Moses on Mount Sinai. It was a specific law given to a specific people for a specific period of time for a specific purpose. And I keep reminding you of this, if if we've been here, the purpose of the law was to establish a society among a people that had never been their own people before. The the Hebrew people had been slaves in Egypt for generations, hundreds of years. And they come out, God is bringing them to a promised land and they they don't know how to rule themselves. They don't know how to live as a culture. And so God gives them this law and says, this is how you live. This is how you live in community with one another. And so there was, it was this amazing experiment. I mean, we live, we experience an American experiment of democracy. And I'm really thankful to to live here because I would much rather live under democracy with all of our issues, all of our problems. I'd rather live here than under a dictator who just decides willy-nilly whatever they want to be, the laws. I'd rather live here, but our experiment pales in comparison to this experiment with the Hebrew people, which was not a democracy, but a theocracy, So the idea was, here's here's a law that you live under, but you're actually living under the authority and the kingship of God himself. That was the intent. So that experiment didn't go very well. It didn't turn out well, and actually, if you've read much of the Old Testament, you see the narrative there of over and over again how this did not play out well. And Paul is gonna do an autopsy now of what went wrong. And I'll just give you a hint up front, God was not the problem in this equation, okay? The first thing that we might think is, well, maybe the law was the problem. There's something wrong with the law. So he poses that, going back now to verse 7 and unpacking. He says, what then shall we say, that the law is sin? And then he says, by no means, We've seen this phrase before the Greek, meganoito. It's the strongest possible way he can refute. Absolutely not. The law is not the, the problem. And then he bookends the paragraph with the same conclusion, okay, verse 12. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The law is not the problem. The law is a trigger to the problem, and the problem it turns out is something in us, it's not something external to us, it's something actually inside of us. Let's read on in verse seven. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. So what Paul is saying here is that there's something in us that's kind of dormant until the, the law comes along and triggers it and wakes it up. I mean, what came to mind when I was studying this is, if, if you've seen, anybody seen the Hobbit movies? Okay. Any, okay. No, I know more of you have seen it and you just don't want to admit that you're a geek like me. But anyway, the, the Hobbit movies are not as good as the original Lord of the Rings movies, but at the end of the first Hobbit movie, Smaug, the, the dragon, is lying you know, amongst all of his riches asleep and then do you remember a little bird comes and he's, no one is nodding, no one is admitting that you've seen this, thank you, thank you. Someone, at least one. Okay, so a little bird outside of the rock is like tapping on the rock and somehow a little tiny bird tapping on the rock wakes Smog up and the end of the first movie is his eyelid pops open and then you're all set for the second movie which is The Desolation of Smog. Don't you wanna watch it now? Anyway, that's like the picture here is that sin is asleep until the law comes along and kind of taps and then wakes it up, and then it's gonna create all of this destruction and desolation. I call this also the don't walk on the grass syndrome. Okay, what what happens when you see a sign that says don't walk on the grass? Don't you just wanna walk on the grass? Maybe some of you do. Don't raise your hand for that one, okay? Maybe some of you, you you just look at the grass, and think, like, oh, it looks so nice. I'll take my shoes off, I'll walk in it. I had this experience personally, not with grass this week, but this week I was heating up my lunch in the microwave in our work room right over here, and there was a pepper, a, a pepper grinder on top of the microwave, and I, and I needed to use the pepper on, on my lunch, so I turned it around, and don't you know, it said, do not refill, and I thought to myself suddenly, I wanna refill this thing. <laughs> I'll show you, You, what, really, you're gonna tell me not to refill? I mean, we bought this, so I'm gonna gonna refill this thing. I may injure myself while I'm trying to refill it, but I'm gonna refill, you know? So that's kind of what happens here, is that when a command comes, we just want to break it. The specific example that Paul gives us is coveting. I mean, some of you will recall that do not covet is the 10th, of the original Ten Commandments. So quoting Exodus 20, verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or anything that is your neighbor's. I cut out some other things in there just to get to the point. We are not to long for or want what anybody else has and possesses. And so it's interesting that Paul picks as an example here one of the two commandments that are sins of the heart. They're, they're hidden sins. The, the other eight commandments are things that are kind of objective, you could kind of measure. I mean, we, we know objectively when someone has murdered someone, or you can measure if someone has lied and borne false witness to someone. You can measure those, those things. But the first and the last are sins of the heart. The first is, don't have any other God besides me. That's an issue of the heart. And the last is, you shall not long for something that belongs to someone else. So Paul picks this one as an example, probably because it's a pretty universal experience. And he knows, you know, we we might get out of a lot of the other ones, and we might be able to plead our case, but on this one, we're, we're gonna have an experience with that. And so The command to not covet triggers disobedience. And and Paul here, he personifies sin as though, almost as though it has a will. It's it's not just an impersonal force. It's like it has a will. Verse eight, read verse eight. Sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. It's interesting what... The, the word opportunity here, sin, seizing an opportunity, it's a military term. It's the idea of a, like a beachhead. So if you think about D-Day, and you think how the, the allied forces went in and took the beaches so that they could establish at great cost, took the beaches, and that was a good situation. Okay, so that, and now this analogy doesn't entirely work, but, but the beachhead idea is that they came in to establish a spot from which they could expand, and then in that case, take back land that had been stolen by a, a dictator. In this case, Paul says: sin is seizing an opportunity, it's establishing a beachhead in us by the commandment so that it can produce in me all kinds of covetousness. It's grabbing a spot, it's getting a foothold so that then it can multiply and and expand. And so he goes on to say, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. There are a lot of scholars as they read this that, that believe that Paul is not just speaking autobiographically here. He is because he's using I actually for the first time in, in the letter, he switches to first person. And so he's talking about his own experience, but a lot of scholars think he's not just talking about that, he's also talking about the experience of Israel, the nation of Israel and the giving of the, the law. So we could say here, if that's the case in verse nine, that that people were once alive apart from the law, but then God gave the commandment to the Hebrew people, sin came alive, and they, they died. At Sinai, when the commandment came, sin sprang to life. For Paul, personally, that may have happened at his bar mitzvah, age 13, when he becomes personally responsible then to follow the the law and the commandments. Maybe he wasn't even aware before he turned 13 that there was a commandment that said, do not covet. He would have been aware because he would have been taught from the time that he was a child, but suddenly he's aware that there's this command, do not covet, and suddenly then he wants to covet. The, The commandment triggers the desire to disobey. We see that all the way back to the first example of disobedience in Genesis chapter three. God gave one command to the man and woman, do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But the the tempter comes along and tempts them saying, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. So he makes the sin look good, and in fact, the the fruit itself looks good. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, I think it's so interesting that God didn't make that fruit look really nasty on the outside, like a coconut or something like that, like, ooh, who wants to eat that? But he made it look good, and and she hears that the tree was desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate Here's the problem that you and I have when we disobey commands. We don't trust that what God provides for us is better than what he forbids. Let me say that again. Our problem is that we don't trust that what God has provided for us is better than what he forbids. We think that if God told us not to do something well, that must be the preferred thing because God is holding out on us. I mean, think about this, this scene in Genesis 3. God told the man, you can eat from any tree in the garden. And we, we all know like, how good, there, there's so many good fruits and things that grow on trees to eat. There's all this variety. He says you can eat from any tree except this one. And so there's something about that forbiddenness and, and you can take any other command that God has, has given us and we think God's holding out on us. No, what God provides for us is better than anything that he's forbidding from you. When the power of sin is added to, so, so sin personified, when that power is added to our bent to sin, our, our dormant original sin that lies in us, and then there's temptation. Sin is conceived. James talks about this in chapter one. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed. How? By his own desire, We don't shift responsibility onto the devil or to God for setting up these commands or anybody else. It is our own desire. We must take responsibility for our own desires. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. God's, God's desire is for our good. His purpose is for our good. The enemy's lies Are deceptive. Let's read on verse 10. The very commandment that produced life, that promised life, proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. Here here is our military base again. Did you catch that in verse 11? Seizing an opportunity. In fact, verses 8 and 11 start exactly the same way. Verse 8, but sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment, and verse 8 ends, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. And in verse 11 ends, deceived me and through it killed me. You and I should be, we should have a very healthy fear of the word deceived anytime it shows up in Scripture. We, we should have a healthy fear of that word because by definition, we don't know what's happening. So please don't ever say, I'm, I'm so glad I'm not deceived like so-and-so over here, because at that very moment, likelihood is that you're just not aware of it, but you're, you've been deceived in some, some way. This, this is not the message today, but how, how do we guard against that? We know what the truth is. We know what God has said is true so that we can then recognize when deception comes along and tries to to drag us down. Paul's conclusion is God's commands are good, verse 12. So the law is holy, the commandment is holy and righteous and good. All right, so what is the biblical resolution to the tension that we started out with? What, What do we do with the commands? Do we we engage, do we obey the commands? Do we say, well, we've we've got to to keep them? But then we might fall into legalism. And so do we say, "Eh, no, it's okay, we're we're under grace. Do do we fall into license? What if people go wild with that? Let me me propose this as the way to resolve this. Reject the law as the path to God, but respect the law as the heart of God. We reject the law as the path to God. We saw this last week. Um, Verse four of chapter seven. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. We die to the law. We reject the law as the path to God. That's not the way to get to God. The way to get to God is by faith in Christ alone. But we still respect the law as the heart of God. It expresses what God's desires are, it expresses his character, and so we respect it. What does that look like in in our life? Well, I'll say it again. The the Old Testament law is not in effect for us anymore. It's not in effect for anybody anymore. It was for a specific people at a specific time in a specific place. So it's not for us to obey per se, it's not not for us to put ourselves under, but, but there are things that we can learn from it about God. So here's a good question to ask as you're reading the Old Testament law. What does this teach me about God? So let me give you an example. We'll go to Leviticus, Leviticus is always fun. 19, 19.19, Deuteronomy 19.19, 19. you shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. When was the last time you shared that on social media? <laughs> like, this was my verse for this morning. It was so cool. What does this mean? Like, what does this ha- Well, first of all, um, we're, we're not under this law. So, okay, so you don't have to check your tag right now. Like, Oh, man, you know, polyester and whatever. Um, so it's okay if you have a piece of clothing on that. I mean, most of us, like, okay, so starting out with the cattle. Like, most of us don't have cattle, so we don't have to deal with that. Most of us don't sow fields. Maybe some of you have some, some gardens. We're all wearing garments. Thank you very much. But, you know, don't, don't worry if it's two kinds of material. What, what is this getting at? What does this, let's ask the question, what does this teach us about God? Well, God, we know, is pure and holy and uncontaminated and undivided. And God, as he's establishing this nation and he's establishing this society of people, he wants them to be uncontaminated and undivided in their hearts. He wants them to be uncontaminated by the people that surround them that are doing evil. Just like he wants you and I to be uncontaminated by the world that surrounds us that is ignoring God and going their own way. He says, I want you to stay focused on me. So this, these commands are like an everyday reminder, don't mix things up. Don't don't mix stuff up, just stay focused on God. The Bible Knowledge Commentary says this about this verse. The forbidden mixtures suggest that man was not to confuse what God had made distinct. So that's one example of of many. We we respect the law as the heart of God. It, It tells us something about who God is and what he wants for his people. But we reject the law as the path to God because thank goodness for that because none of us can keep the law perfectly. All right, so how do we apply this? What does this mean for everyday life? Well, some of us need to reframe our relationship, our connection to God. We need to reframe our connection to God because it's been based on rules. It's been based on trying to do things the way God wants me to so that I don't fall out of favor with him so he's angry with me and kicks me out of his family. We, we can set that aside and instead we can focus on relationship. God's connection with us is not based on rules, it's based on relationship. And so along those lines, if you were here last week, I encourage you to pause your performance Right? Instead of trying to perform for God, to, to pause that and to be still with God and just, just cultivate being in his presence. So I, I hope that you're all practicing. I hope you all start your day or end your day. You have some time in your day that you are, you're spending time cultivating your relationship with God. If you're not doing that, you're not gonna be very close to God. So that's just the way that works. You gotta carve out time to, to be reading his truth, and feeding on his truth, and to be praying, to communicate with him, to offload. Your, it's like you're inloading what he has to say to you, and then you're offloading the burdens uh, to him and trusting him with those things. What, however that looks like for you, spending time with God, reading, and it, it needs to involve truth, and maybe journaling, maybe you listen to music, maybe you like to go out in, into nature. Whatever that is, somewhere in there, what I'm Asking you to do is to pause your performance because all of that can become a performance. All of that can become a checklist. And you and I live in a culture that is so busy. We are constantly running from one thing to another and then we're checking our phone and then we got another thing to get done and we got another place to be. And somewhere in there, we've got to pause. Pause all of that performance and just be with God. Because otherwise, you're gonna spend your life just trying to obey the rules and trying to tick off enough things that you don't tick God off. I just made that up, write that down. Okay, so that's, that's one application for, for all of us. Here, I have another specific application for those of you who are parents, especially those of you who are parents who have kids um, in, in your house right now. Cultivate your connection with your kids, not based on rules, but based on relationship. So if you live in a house, if you grew up in a house, or you're cultivating an environment in a house that is based on rigid rules, then what you can expect is rebellion. But if you have rules, and I'm not suggesting that you don't have any rules, if you have rules in the context of grace and truth, then what you cultivate with your kids is trust and obedience. And so we, we had a, a couple that shared this with us early on in our parenting journey, and we have not always done it right, for, for sure. But they, that has always stuck with Sherry and me to say, it's, we, we need to make sure we're not leaning on the side of rules, but let's do relationship with our kids, build relationship with our kids so that the rules, they they know the rules are there because we love them. This is basically learning how God fathers us. We learn how to do this by letting God father us. He is the only one that does it perfectly, but we learn from him, and then we learn how to pass that on to our kids. Let me leave you with a few phrases, those of you parents. less, Less lecture, more listening. We're always, sometimes, some of us are quick to like launch into the lecture of like why what you did was wrong and it wasn't good for you. And is that, I mean, less lecture, more listening. What, what was going on for you right there when you just did that knuckleheaded thing? But you can leave off the knuckleheaded thing. What, tell me, what's going on for you? Less, less statements, more questions. We like to just make statements. This is the way it needs to be. ask questions. And, and draw them out and find out what's going on in, in their hearts. Less pronouncements, more presence. Be Be with your kids. We learn how to do that by being with our Heavenly Father. Reject the law as the path to God, but respect the law as the heart of God. Let's ask him for help to do that. Father, thank you. Thank you for establishing relationship with us, not based on rules, but based on your love, on your grace. Rules are involved, we need commandments, we need guardrails, but Lord, I thank you that you have removed from us the burden of having to perform perfectly in obeying those commands because we are hopelessly incapable of doing that. So thank you, Jesus for perfectly fulfilling the performance that was required by God the Father so that you could die in our place to take our penalty so that we might have life. Lord, help us to pause our performance before you. Help us to learn about your heart from the commands that you have left for us. And then, Lord, may our obedience to your commands flow out of the connection that we have with you because you love us so much. We pray that in Jesus' name.